Good morning. Encourage you to take God's word and turn to Ephesians, not Ephesians, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. If you don't remember anything else I've said this morning, remember that phrase I spoke just after communion. We are called to do for our spouses what Christ has done for us. That's the truth of God's word in terms of how he's defined the relationship that we call marriage. Now, before we get into this this morning, I want to begin with prayer. I know this is a topic that everyone will have their opinion about, about what I should say, about what I shouldn't say. So I don't know about you, but I need prayer. So (laughs) will you pray with me? Father God, we appreciate that we can be here this morning. And we say that, and yet, you know our humanity. You know our weeks. You know our months. You know our circumstances, some that are known, some that are not known. You know all the garbage and baggage that we bring with us this morning. And so we pray for our own hearts that your spirit would touch them. We pray for for those that are grieving losses of loved ones, of parents, of fathers and mothers. There's been quite a number over the last several months. We pray you bring peace and comfort as we talk about family. We pray for those, Lord, that are just recovering from physical situations and circumstances that invaded their life. Many look into their future and they feel it's unknown. We just pray that in the midst of all that, as we talk about family, that you bring them comfort and peace. For others, Lord, that this morning come here with pains from their past and circumstances and situations, again, may your spirit just speak a word of peace into their lives and truth. And I just pray this morning, Lord, that we're confession needs to happen, it happens. Where repentance needs to happen, it happens. It's, I mean, your desire really is to bring all people to you. As we unpack what it means for us to be with each other as you are with us, uh, give us wisdom in this matter, Lord. We pray these things in your name. And everyone said, Amen. As I begin, I want to say several things. First, when we talk about this whole subject of marriage and divorce and family, the church in the past has been guilty, and even the present, of vilifying certain sins above others. In my own lifetime as a pastor, divorce and remarriage has been one of those. I remember early on in my ministry, many times people that have had Divorced relationships and or divorced remarried were treated as second class Christians. I had pastored some churches that when I first got there, they had written into their policies that anyone who was divorced and or remarried could not join as a member of that church or serve in any capacity. I remember 
situation one time, and again, I was like 28 years old, and there was a couple from the community that started coming. They didn't have Christ in their lives. They found Christ, and each one of them had at least, from what I remember, two broken marriages, and so they were together, and they were married, and they accepted Christ. They found new life in Christ. Well, that week, one of the members of the church took them out for supper, sat them down, and here's what they said. They said, well, if you're really sincere about your faith in Jesus, you guys need to divorce. Because in your remarried state, you're committing adultery every single day, and adulterers aren't allowed in the kingdom of heaven. And they said, well, okay, if we divorce, what are we supposed to do? And he says, well, you got to wait for your first spouse. And they said, but they're remarried. Well, pray their marriages break up so you can get married to the person you first got married to. And I said to myself, you break up three marriages to get two back, but then those people are divorced from marriage. And if that was their first spouse, you see the complications? But as a church, we have to confess that. We have dealt rather harshly and treated this whole subject as the unpardonable sin. Secondly, we know according to Scripture that God hates divorce, not for the reasons we often state. It's destructive in its nature to life on all levels, just not marriage. And when you look at our And I'm not going to do a lot of statistics this morning. I think we know that the state of marriage in America is in rough shape. For the first time in American history, I don't know if you know this, single-parent homes outnumber two-parent homes. And there's an incredible need for confession and forgiveness in this matter. But we know that God hates sin. And yes, he hates divorce because of the destructive nature of it. Three, there are many of you here this morning that have had failed marriages. And I want to make sure that you know that I do not sit in condemnation of you. There is so much that I, that we cannot and do not see looking from the outside in. We try to make this too simple at times. But sin complicates relationships. But usually in a situation with divorce and remarriage, trust is shattered. And when trust is shattered, I realize it's hard to trust other people with your story. I get that. So no matter what I say this morning, do not take them as words of condemnation. But rather, I want to offer hope. What I'd like to do this morning is shed light on the purpose of marriage. Why God initiated marriage. And I want to speak to you from the way that Paul speaks. In 1 Corinthians, he's speaking and he's writing to a problematic church. I mean, relationships are all over the place. There's married, there's unmarried, there's people that are divorced, there's people that are getting divorced. And so finally he comes along and he's trying to address these complicated situations that have arisen due to conversion, due to sin, due to culture. Blame it on whatever you want, but here's what he says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Here's what he's saying. Start where you're at. 
And you note that he said, it's my rule. And as churches try to navigate a world full of sin and what sin does in devastating ways, we, through God's word, through his spirit, and through the church, try to figure out this out the best we can. So, no matter where you're at this morning, start where you are. By that, I mean take personal accountability. Don't sit there if your marriage isn't going too well and blame somebody else. Don't excuse what you're about to do or thinking about doing on somebody else. By this, I mean if you're married and you're in an inappropriate relationship, you stop it. You know, last week I talked about Facebook and knock it off. Do you know how many relationships were started on Facebook with a past person that they knew in college or in high school? And they left their current spouse for this person, this fantasy. Because you and I know the old phrase is what? The grass is always greener on the other side? You and I know that the one at the distance is always viewed better than the one up close. So start where you're at. Another way of stating that is learn to love the one you're with. I think there's a song about that, wasn't that? Now, I want to say that divorce and remarriage is not the unpardonable sin. <laughs> if you can prove otherwise in Scripture, show me. But I want to tell you this morning what I am for. I am pro-life. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I am pro-new life. In fact, I've come to use this term now that... As a Christian, I am for the sanctity of life. And let me unpack that in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to what Paul says to this church. And first he starts saying this, okay? Don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futilities of their mind. So if you walk according to culture, if you believe what the culture says, if you buy into the cultural model, it will darken your mind and you will convince yourselves of things that are not true. That's where he starts out. But let's pick up in verse 20. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. I think we have a slide. Yes. Here's what he says. That model, that way of life, that Gentile cultural model, it doesn't matter whether it's American or Canadian or Mexican or South American. He says, you don't believe it. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, you put off your old cell, which belongs to the former manner of life, is corrupt through deceitful desires. We talked about deceitful desires last week. The week before, Dr. Kime talked about deceitful desires. You know, the two things that bring most marriages down, anger and lust. The progression of this is logical. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Before you ever get it to your heart, you have to get the truth up here. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, according to this and according to other passages, I believe in the sanctity of life. I believe that all things can be made new. Amen? Isn't that what... Scripture says, 
He doesn't say that some things are made new. He says, no, behold, all things are made new. We are not defined by our sins. We're defined by Christ. Now, my belief, and again, I could be wrong about this, but my belief is that today, the cultural model of marriage and not the biblical one is prevalent in most of our churches. Now, I get it out there. I do not expect unbelievers who are not part of a Christian community, I get they buy into the cultural model. I don't know why that shocks us or surprises us. But inside the church, we do not adopt that model and put Christian clothes on it to make it sound good. So I trust as God ministers this morning that you will listen and humbly respond to his leading. So we're at the passage, Ephesians, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 33. Again, the context, he is clarifying God's intent. Here's what the Pharisees and here's what culture has said about marriage. He says, well, you know, you, you've heard this, but here's what I have to say. It was also said, again, you've heard this, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever makes, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we get all hung up on the exceptions. We all get into the legalism and say, well, when can I and when can I? And that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's introducing the problem. Here's the problem. And I'm going to put it in we terms, not them terms. The problem is that we are arrogant and ignorant. Now, you don't believe me, do you? <laughs> By the stunned look. I mean, Jesus is saying, listen, you got it wrong. You and your arrogance play God and make your own definitions. You and your ignorance do not realize that what you really are doing is demoting the value of life. See, their view of marriage changed from God's intent. They lost the purpose of marriage. And they did not think about the long-term negative consequences that that would do not only to the Christian community, but to society as a whole. We're going to see this in a moment. Let me state this another way. They decided to live the reality of Genesis 3 and not Genesis 2. Now, there's a parallel passage found in Matthew 19 that just broadens us out a little bit. He uses the same things, but note what he gets into here. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? See, they bought into the cultural model. It became very male-dominated, and they could really do whatever they wanted to do, and they could do it legally and claim, whoop, I wasn't to blame because I did it according to the law. He answered, have you not read that those who created them from the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. 
he goes right back to Genesis 1 and chapter 2. So, let's go there. Genesis 1, the formation of creation. When you start reading the Hebrew, you get this rhythm. Here's how it goes. God said, let there be, and it was so. Let there be light, and it was so. Let there be birds, and it was so. Let there be, it was so. We see this rhythm in the Hebrew language. And at the very end, he said this. It was good. But then we see a shift. When it comes to mankind, he says, not let there be, and it was so. He said, let us make. And think about this. The absolute ruler deciding to make someone else who will rule. The absolute ruler was going to decide to create someone who would bear his image. The image of God. And his rule meant there was work to do. He was supposed to take care of this world. Then God comes along after he made Adam and said this. It is not good for man to be alone. He did not say he was lonely. You note that. That's not why he created Eve. He said it's good for a man not to be alone. He needed a helper. Why? Now I've heard a lot of sermons about this. But isn't it obvious why he needed a helper? I mean, come on, think about it. One of the things Adam was supposed to do was what? Populate the earth. He needed a what? A helper. Adam couldn't do that alone. And we have a good God. Why? Because he made that part of the equation enjoyable. So, the original intent of marriage really was threefold. One was to procreate. It was to produce future generations. Adam couldn't do that by himself. Anybody disagree? Secondly, he was to protect. He was to protect the family. He was to protect the kids. And that involved just not security. It, the protection is an idea of emotional physical and spiritual protection so in other words this whole God thing was to follow down through generation after generation after generation you know later on we read in the Old Testament where it says the sins of the father will visit what unto the seventh generation see the salvation of the father his relationship with Christ was to visit generation after generation after generation and third this marriage was designed To bring glory to God. We're talking about intimacy here. Do you realize that God wanted two things out of the relationship with Adam and Eve? One was exclusivity. How many times do we see that in Scripture? God's a jealous God. You only worship one God, not two, not three. So exclusivity and permanency. God formed an everlasting covenant with Adam. So when we look at marriage, the primary intent was, one, to procreate, two, to protect emotionally, physically, and spiritually, to pass that down through generation after generation after generation, and three, to reflect God's glory to everyone in this world. In other words, we define intimacy. We define exclusivity. We define permanence. 
So God says this, marriage properly practiced will bring security and stability in the context of loving relationships. Now let's go back to salt and light. Think about what our world needs. It needs security. It needs safety. God designed the family to be one of the core pillars of any culture. And you start disintegrating the family, you will quickly disintegrate all level of anything decent and in order in that culture. And don't believe my words for this. They've done studies. They realize that the opposite is true. When you have failed marriages and failed families, there's insecurity, there's instability, and there's a lack of intimacy. And so you get everybody running around trying to figure this out, and nobody gets it right, and we end up in a crazy, crazy mess. Now, I don't know what you think about Canada, but Canada figured this out a long time ago in terms of their society. And so they created a tax structure that would benefit single-income families. That if one of the parents stayed home, you got huge benefits from the government. And they based it on a study they did. They realized that if one parent was at home and raised the kids, there was less juvenile crime. There was less dropout rates in high school. There was less adult crime. And so they started investing in two-parent homes through their tax structure. I have a pastor friend in Canada, and he just told me that Canada instituted a new holiday. Now, if you, if you know anything about Canada, they love the holiday. They call it vacationing. And so the government's always making holidays that it's mandatory that the business has to let them off. You know what the new one is called? It just happened, I think, last week. It's called Family Day. And here was the order from the government. Government says, drop your cell phones. Drop your social media. Drop any kind of device that's electronic. And as a family, go out and do something together. We're going to give you a day off from work so you can spend time with your family and just go do something face to face. Let me state it this way. Marriage is not about my personal happiness and my emotional fulfillment. It's for a greater good than me. Now, here's the crazy part of it. And this is what's the paradox nature of Scripture. Fulfillment comes through mutual sacrifice. But in our culture, we play God and we make marriage about us. Ephesians 5, I read about the sanctify stuff. You look at that and part of sanctifying is that we restrain evil. That in families, there are redemptive purposes. So God's design is procreation, protection, and permanent exclusivity. And it's all in the context of mutual love. But the new reality in our day is marriage is a terminal sexual contract designed for my gratification and fulfillment. And that's why Jesus talks about lust just prior to this. It's why prior to that he talks about anger. Two emotions that destroy many families. So where, before it was designed in Genesis 2, to reflect God's image, to produce character, to raise kids, we flipped that around, and in America, we have made everything about us. 
That's why we are arrogant and ignorant. Because of our narcissistic self. Now for history buffs. I'm going to do a who said it and what moment in history it was said. Okay? And I'm going to show you kind of the progression of what we talk about and yet what we fail to do. Here's the first. I think I have them on the screen. Do I? Yes. The best thing a man can do for his children is to love their mother. Anybody in history know who said that? Abraham Lincoln. Here's another quote. There is no single force causing as much measurable hardship and human misery in this country as the collapse of marriage. It hurts children, it reduces mothers' financial security, and it has landed with particular devastation on those who can bear at the least the nation's underclass. Now, you might not know who said that, but believe it or not, 2009, Time Magazine, a secular magazine's cover story, Is There Hope for the American Marriage? And this was a quote by Caitlin Flanagan, a secular sociologist, talking about the demise of marriage. Fascinating. By the way, she was heavily criticized for making that statement. Heavily criticized. Next quote. We can do everything possible to provide good jobs and good schools and safe streets for our kids. But we'll never be enough to fully make up the difference. That is why we need fathers to step up to realize their jobs do not end at conception. But what makes you a man is not the ability to have a child, but the courage to raise one. Anybody know who said that? When? The quote was from Farade Magazine. I began with a quote from the President of the United States. I'm going to end a quote from the President of the United States. 2011, President Obama said that in an interview in Farade Magazine. Marriage today has become an institution created for the satisfaction of me. And in the church, if we look for If we look more like our culture than we do Christ, there needs to be confession, repentance, and forgiveness. What we fail to realize is that if we redefine marriage, we redefine redefine parenthood. And and I hope you realize this morning that this whole ball of wax, it just isn't about a couple. It's about a family. It's about an extended family. Now I'm going to read on in Matthew 19. In verse 7 it says, Then they said to him, Then... Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Now, you can say from the beginning, we were never intended to have sin. But the hardness of our hearts. See, Genesis 3 is a defiance of God's love. Think about it in this way. Eve walking along saying things like this. Now, I don't know if she said it, but this could have been her logic. Well, God really doesn't have my best interest at heart because if he did, he'd let me eat of that tree. Or, wait, he's hiding something from me. Or, if he really loved me, he would let me eat. I mean, do you see how the rationale goes? And, of course, we all know the story that as a result of the fall, there was consequences 
And we know that everybody tried to blame everybody else, but God handed these consequences out. But listen to this one in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Any women want to say amen? (laughs) Can you imagine before that childbearing wasn't painful? I mean, how cool was that? In pain, you shall bring forth children. Then here's a key phrase. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And now you're bristling, saying, what does that mean? See the word rule? See the word desire? Same word. Translate. Your desire to rule over your husband as a result of this fall will be there in your own heart and mind. And he's going to rule over you physically because he's going to be stronger. Now, for the most part, we know that's true. There's more domestic abuse cases from men to women than women to men. Women men have a tendency to be very violent and very angry, and they use their fists. Women, when they're violent and angry, often use their words. I mean, it's just part of the nature of how God has made us. It doesn't mean that women aren't physically violent and men don't use words. It's just talking about patterns. But you get this. And this is where most people live. They live in the midst of the power struggle. See, there's two consequences to sin in terms of marriage and family. The one is the beauty of childbearing is going to be painful. And two, the beauty of a sacred relationship is going to turn to a power struggle. We do not any longer see marriage as two flawed people coming together. And to me, this is a sanctity of life issue. We are called to sanctify each other. The problem's not with marriage. We're designed for this. The problem is with sin. It's a heart issue. And we are called to do for our spouses what Christ has done for us. Now let me try to wrap this up with some principles. I see my time slipping away. Uh, First, realize this. That Christ alone can fix what is wrong with you inside. One of the frustrating things I hear in many cases is that the spouse wants the other spouse to fix them internally. That's what Christ is for. And it's unfair to make the other person God, your Savior. Christ is that. We celebrated that. It's not your spouse, and it's not fair to put that on them and to burden them because they can't fix you. So Christ alone can fix what's wrong with you inside. So that's where you need to begin this morning. You need to start with Christ. Two, we must live with the perspective of privilege rather than rights. Marriage is a privilege. It is a gift from God. We don't get this as Christians. We don't get this as Americans. We have no rights. Everything that we have is given to us by a gracious God. It is only privilege. Yes, we live in a country where we can protest whatever we want to protest. But that's a privilege, not a right. Not every country has that privilege. Education's a privilege. And it's very difficult for us to assimilate into our thinking privilege versus right because we are so tied into our rights. I have this right. No, you don't. You died to self. You live to Christ. And that's where you find life. And I got to tell you, living with privilege is a lot easier than living with rights. It's only when we die to self we discover incredible freedoms that everything God gives us is a gift. 
Here's a third. This probably will upset a few as well. We have to live with the reality that life's not fair. If you were born in America, it's not fair that you were born in America. Why weren't you born in the slums of India? Or the Soweto ghetto in South Africa? You, you understand that that's not fair. If you had two parents growing up, that's not fair because there's a lot of people that grow up with some have one parent and some have no parents. They're orphans and they're foster kids. It's not fair if you didn't have a set of parents that abused you physically or sexually. Those parents that were to be your protectors were actually the ones who violated you. If you didn't have parents like that, I mean, that's not fair. Think of it this way. It's fortunate that life's not fair because grace is not fair. If God would treat us fairly, none of us would be here today. Amen? So, let's get off this wall. That's not fair. God's son had to die for your sins and my sins. And everything he gives us is a gift. That means... If you think life should be fair, you're going to go through life as a victim. Look at poor me. Look at what I had to put up with. No. You are a conqueror. In fact, Paul says in Romans, you are more than a conqueror. Now, here's my last point. Nothing can keep us from, from living out the intent of God in our marriages. Now, I might put two little words on that and say, accept you. There's no external force that can keep you from living out God's intent. Many of you know I've traveled to Zimbabwe several times. 92% unemployment, subsistence living. If you don't know what that is, it means that you barter for food. You have no money. There are no government schools. There's no health care. There's no government welfare. There's no infrastructure. But the church is alive. It's growing. It's healthy. They have their problems. But you meet people with thriving marriages. And the family structure is very different. They take care of those in their relationships. And if a parent dies, an uncle and aunt step in. If both parents die, grandparents, uncles, aunts, they all step in. See, it's a sanctity of life issue. Today, it's like we're inconvenienced if we have to go and step in because this world and its sin is devastating people. I'm going to call the, the group up. We're going to close with a song. But let me remember this. Today is the day that he has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And let me change those words a little bit. Today is the day he's given you your spouse and your family. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And there will be times. It's why the vows say for better, for worse. In health and in sickness, for rich or for poor. I mean, that's life. But learn what it means to sanctify each other and show this world there is a most excellent way. Let's be to our spouse what Christ has been and is being to us. Amen? Let's stand together as we close.